nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. And I'm so happy to have you all back to listen in, especially to this program. Uh, the, the name of our program today, the episode, is uh, COVID-19 Insights from Healthcare Workers. Uh, in the COVID-19 pandemic in the USA and the world, there are two fights going on one against a virulent and dangerous new coronavirus, and on the other, the other is on behalf of the safety and protection of essential workers across the world. The disease is doing an exceptional job at its mission, which is to infect and kill as many hosts as possible. The well-trained, committed doctors, nurses, and all workers in healthcare are doing their jobs passionately, up to and including getting ill themselves and some even dying. Some countries, states, cities, hospital administrators, and political leaders are, to a large extent, failing miserably at their mission, which should be to clear the obstacles out of the way for each and every doctor, nurse, hospital employee, pharmacist in tech, military personnel, emergency workers of all kinds, public employees, grocery and other clerks, gas station attendants, and bus and truck drivers. And at the very least, they should be protecting them with the proper and sufficient protective equipment to allow them to do their jobs in relative safety. My guests today are Darlene Nelson, who is an RN from San Antonio, Texas, and Dr. Juan Nieto of Austin, Texas, who wish to share their insights of healthcare workers in their state. I would like to introduce you. So, Darlene, um, uh, you are a consultant and an expert expert nurse consultant. Um, Dr. Juan Nieto is board certified, clinically active in the emergency room. My voice was fine before. Darlene, can you help me out here and give a brief bio of what brought you to nursing and then what brought you to what you're doing now? Darlene? Can you hear me? Yes. No. Okay. I'm a Canadian-trained nurse who in 1992 came to the United States where I began working and spent 20 years in the Level 1 Trauma Center we have here in San Antonio uh, because I just fell in love with trauma and academic medicine and then, of course, had a family and so stayed in San Antonio. And then after my 20 years at University Hospital here, where actually I had the honor to work with Dr. Nieto, who's one of our guests. Uh, I then began to work in smaller community hospitals as a emergency room charge nurse for another 11 years. And then in 2017, I retired uh, because of health issues. And I started with a group of other nurses, a company called Expert Nurse Consultants, where what we do is we help and we advocate for nurses who are being either overcharged or falsely charged by the Board of Nursing. 
we help nurses throughout the country. Uh, and that kind of somehow led me into the COVID crisis because I have so many contacts still within the nursing world and hearing the cries of my peers that we're being asked to go on a suicide mission, that we are not being given protective equipment. We're not being given N95s and we're risking our lives. So that's sort of how I got to this point that we're going to discuss today. Thank you so much. And Dr. Juan Yeto, could you do the same thing? Give us a short bio. How did you get into medicine? And then what brought you to this point of, of wanting to advocate for healthcare workers? Sure. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to your show and sharing a few thoughts. Hopefully not to uh, blow anybody's mind. Uh, we are all so saturated, I think, with uh, so much about this uh, pandemic and virus. I don't know that there's too much I can add re with regard to the virus, etc. But basically, I, I grew up in this very small border town in far west Texas in the Big Bend National Park area. I, uh, I've always wanted to to be in medicine. I was fortunate to uh, study at the University of Colorado uh, School of Medicine, uh, where I became interested in emergency medicine. Then I internship, uh, I interned at LA County, USC Medical Center. Following that, I uh, came back to Denver and did my residency in emergency medicine under the man who wrote the book and who taught us more than medicine. And he taught us about compassion and our purpose in life as physicians. Uh, my career has been spent in the emergency department. For 16 years, I worked with Darlene at uh, UT Health Science Center in San Antonio, uh, teaching students and residents. And a few years ago, I came back to Austin and slowed down, and I am presently working at a freestanding emergency department. And a reason I I've been outspoken to the point of wanting to scream uh, as because I've been hearing from former students and residents about the difficulties that they have faced or they are facing with the onset of this uh, pandemic. I have been knowledge keeping up with it since the beginning, and I have been speaking out or trying to speak out on my friend's behalf. Locally, it has not been a major issue at this point, but we don't know. We just don't mm -hmm. know, and that's my little bio. <laughs> Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Um, you mentioned the beginning, and I wondered if you could kind of give us a little chronology of how did this all start? I think for a lot of people, um, it was not on their radar for quite a long time, and maybe for some people, not still on their radar. So um, could you tell us how this got started and where did things start to go wrong? Okay, I, I think it's, it's always good to put out the truth, the facts. The facts will never change, but social media has brought on a huge uh, amount of the theories, conspiracy theories mainly, on how this virus was created by the Chinese to the perfect weapon, etc. The truth is that as a lot of these viruses that started in uh, the Africa or uh, Asia, these usually are 
animal demand transmission. Once that transmission occurs, uh, it becomes a man-demand transmission. And this particular virus was traced down to a meat market in the city of Wuhan, which we had never heard of. Most Americans had never heard of. When the uh, physician and uh, one of the major hospitals noticed a lot of patients were dying from a weird pneumonia that he could not recognize, and it was more deadly than the usual viral pneumonia or atypical pneumonias. He was able to isolate the virus, and he warned the uh, authorities, the health care departments, about the potential of a novel uh, virus. Novel meaning that we had not seen this virus before. He was ignored. And unfortunately, the virus spread out of uh, the Wuhan area and eventually made itself uh, a global traveler. That yeah. kind of, in a nutshell, explains for the, how the virus got out. The Chinese mm -hmm. government suppressed it. They did not want their economy affected, so they didn't want to cause and create any panic. Uh, but when people started dropping like flies, right. They threw in everything they had with the in a dictatorship. It's very easy to have everyone stay home uh, or be shot. Uh, we can't do that here. But they were able to clamp down aggressively in a way that no other country in this world probably can do. Uh, the, the virus loves to travel, and it made itself into the U U.S. fairly rapidly. We have a lot of traveling globally in the States, and that's how it made its way here. Mm -hmm. uh, we committed the same error that the Chinese did. We were given warnings that this virus was coming, and the people in charge of pandemic research had been let go of their jobs a couple of months before this pandemic was reported. Uh, to the National Security Council in January. So we essentially dropped the ball. We ignored it. We called it a hoax. We used it for political reasons, etc. on both sides. I'm not taking sides here, but on both sides. But our leadership failed us. We failed to listen to the warnings of the great epidemiologists we have throughout the world that this thing was a, an epidemic that is going to go pandemic. The World Health Organization was throwing out uh, all kinds of warnings. We refused to listen. Then we came back with fury and called it a hoax, uh, man-made virus. We called it a Chinese virus. We tried to blame everyone. But this virus does not discriminate. If there's any discrimination, it's against the elderly and the poor, the people with lower immune responses. And essentially, right. we, by the time the people started dying here in the States, it received more attention, and people could no longer ignore it. You cannot ignore a pandemic like us. And the only way to deal with a pandemic, it's pretty much like a brush fire. Mm. You put it out very early. Once the brush fire is out, is out of containment, it is very difficult to put it out. Mm -hmm. And so here we are dealing with a pandemic that's gone viral, you should say. It's very difficult to treat, very difficult to contain. And 
that's where this concept of social distancing, perhaps physical distancing is a better term. I don't know, because we continue to socialize via mm-hmm. social media, uh, but we are physically apart. And people don't get the concept of how this works. They mm-hmm. imagine this big black cloud, like the Black Plague, coming in and sweeping over us and just killing everything in its path. And nothing could be further from the truth. The bottom line is that there are not millions of cases yet. Uh, it is still bouncing around from one area to another. And the only uh, best, most effective thing we can do is to try to contain it. Once we are able to contain it, we will be able to do surveillance as we normally do with any outbreak in public health. We identify those that have the disease, we quarantine them, we keep them away from healthy people, and the virus eventually is stopped in its tracks. Mm-hmm. Right now this thing is all over the world. It's a global issue, and I think it requires a global response. Unfortunately, even our national response has failed us and local responses are failing people in some of our states. And in in this day and age, it's uh, just incredible that this very wealthy, powerful country has allowed this to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think we must be informed as to why this happened and why we are being asked to stay home. Uh, It's not that there's a black cloud coming over the horizon. It is about your neighbor. It is about somebody else touching a surface, sneezing, leaving droplets in the air. That's what this whole effort is about right now. The fact that it's so invisible, I think, is what is um, keeping people in denial about it. If it was the black cloud that came overhead, everybody would say, oh, there's the black cloud. I need to stay away from that. I need to whatever. But because it's so invisible, and I think because we've lost a lot of trust of our, our national and and uh, local leaders, that we tend to not know, is this really something we can believe or not believe? Um, and then when the message that's going out is inconsistent, it makes it even harder to do that. Um, Dr. Nieto, um, there... I don't think very many people really, particularly in our country, understand that there's different kinds of hospitals, public and private, profit and nonprofit. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yes, the history of this country has been mostly uh, a typical model with a big city county hospital taking care of trauma and all the indigent, and and then there's the private sector with the uh, boutique hospitals. Uh, it's a tier two-class system that we've always had. Uh, unfortunately, when something like this, or to this extent, hits, it's going to hit the public hospital the hardest mm-hmm. uh, because that's where people go to get their medical care. I have been the primary provider for thousands of people who have no access to health care. As a matter of fact, I've heard politicians say everybody in America has access to health care. All they have to do is go to the ER. And right. That hits home. That really hits home. It is the most expensive 
medicine you can it's the most expensive price we pay for a visit they have no access. They have nowhere else to go. And we just, we accept it. We treat them. Mm-hmm. And, and then we throw them out in the street to navigate the medical care system, which does not want them. Mm-hmm. So That's what ends up happening is those... Delivery of health care with, with a uh, tiered system and uh, no emphasis on prevention. That is my biggest uh, criticism of our health care system is... It is very fragmented. It is very poor. There are other countries less developed that have better healthcare systems than ours because they spend their money in the most expedient and most cost-effective way, and that is by prevention. Long ago, we were taught that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm-hmm. Now we are seeing a surface. It's taking a pandemic to expose the inequities of our healthcare system. Right. So the thing that always amazes me, well, and maybe because I'm in healthcare, but to me it's like a big spider web. And it seems to me that there aren't people on one side of the spider web that are in um, that are not impacted by the people on the other side of the, the spider web. Anywhere on the web where something is not right or has the web has been torn or um, it's diseased or there's there's some attack on it, um, that's going to impact the whole web, not just the people that are immediately in the area of it. And that's the thing I can't understand why people can't see that. You, you can't... Um, allow one group of the of the population to have no health care, no place to go, no hope, no no um, place to work, no money to have a roof over their head, food, whatever, and not expect them to get very, very ill and pass that illness to everybody else. Um, it seems very common sense to me and very easy to see, but it, like you said, it's taken a pandemic for that to be visible to a lot of other people. Darlene, um, could you tell a little bit more about kind of the the um, maybe some of the statistics or some things that you've learned about this um, whole crisis? Well, the the thing that I have focused on the most is what I'm hearing the most. And Dr. Nieto had said the system failed, and it did fail in preparedness. And what happened is. The bottom line is front health care workers are not being protected against this virus because there was not sufficient personal protective equipment, especially the N95 mask. And Dr. Cadlock, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness at the Department of Health and Human Services, he had projected and is in the media and the pandemic uh, playbook that 35 billion N95 masks would be required in order to deal with a pandemic, a viral pandemic, a novel viral pandemic. No hospital can stockpile that amount. The teaching hospitals, the public hospitals that Dr. Nieto speaks of, they they are the community's safety net, and they prepare more for this type of thing. But they only order about 22 million N95s. A year. So we have this huge lack of PPE. We need 35 billion. Now, the states may have been able 
to stockpile that, and maybe the state on an independent state level failed us. Um, but apparently, when all of this started, there was 12 million N95s in the strategic national stockpile, and there were 16,600 ventilators in the stockpile. And yet, for weeks, the government, actually for months, the federal government, who becomes the one you have to rely on because the hospitals can't prepare to that degree, mm-hmm. and the states really can't prepare to that degree, and so therefore you have to rely on the federal government, who do have a pandemic plan. It is their job to roll out the pandemic plan. But for almost three months, PPE was not sufficiently supplied to hospitals, neither was ventilators. And so what that means is that healthcare workers, in the terms I hear, nurses say to me, I feel like I'm being sent on a suicide mission. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm considered dispensable. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm going into a war zone, unprotected. And they are. The only mask that protects you from inhaling the COVID-19 virus, and this is well proven by research and studies, in fact, they say that you that the COVID-19 virus can penetrate five layered on top of each other regular surgical masks. That's how little mm-hmm. protection those provide. Mm-hmm. But the N95 is able to filter it. So then when they had... For whatever reason, the government did not disperse the supplies they did have, and I don't know what efforts they made to get more supplies. So the CDC then downgraded their guidelines for this in response to the shortage of PPE. But what's important about the CDC's guidelines is they never said this is the standard of care, nor did they say this is how we recommend you protect yourself from COVID-19. They said these are last-ditch efforts. When you don't have an N95, when there is no supply, then you're going to have to go to the second-best option, and they even mentioned things like bandanas. And these are interim guidelines that were Mm -hmm. made in response to the government's failure to provide the N95s that were needed by nurses and and RT and emergency physicians. And then it was about two weeks ago that um, President Trump and Vice President Trump finally dispersed supplies. And, And they said in their briefing that they had these millions of gowns and masks, and they were finally going to dispense them to certain hospitals, only those in the hard-hit areas. So now we have three months of nurses and doctors and RTs having been exposed to COVID-19, having developed a very high viral load because of their repetitive exposure, and they've become vectors. In other words, they're the ones carrying the virus around. Mm -hmm. I hear stories. Just yesterday, I, I received an email the nurse in a COVID-19 ICU here in El Paso is being asked to wear the same N95 and the same gown from patient to patient. And the standard of care is you change your PPE from each patient. Otherwise, you're just carrying it from one patient to the next. Right. But that's 
that is their attempt to stretch or ration the PPE. And the hospitals are using the excuse, well, this is what the CDC says, but they're not saying, well, the CDC says that only if you don't have a supply, which they don't. Mm-hmm. And the other fallout from this, and even the American Nurses Association has come out with a statement, nurses and doctors are being terminated for speaking out, for mm-hmm. saying, listen, we need PPE. We need to be properly protected. We need to protect our patients. They're having, they're losing their jobs. They're being terminated on the spot. One nurse I know, of, the chief nursing officer, literally ripped the mask off of her face and told her, the next time I see you with a mask, you will be terminated on the spot. That's no way to support your health care workers who are the ones that are putting their lives on the line. And that's no way to say, we're behind you, and we're going to get you through this pandemic because you're the ones that are caring for the sick. Right. So I, I just heard, I think it was yesterday, a doctor in New York was saying, that he, they, all of the employees, himself included, were being told that they should treat the PPE, the uh, personal protective equipment, as very valuable resources. And the doctor's comment was, I thought we were the valuable resources. And when you think about it, you know, a mask, whatever expensive it is, if it's $15 a mask or whatever, how does that come anywhere near the years and years of training, experience, um, education, uh, working as a team, all of that? How does that even come close? So to me, I would think everyone would be bending their, bending over themselves to try and make sure that these people who know and have the knowledge are the ones who survive. Because without them, we don't survive. And, and it doesn't right. seem like that's clear. Unfortunately, you know, and even from the top uh, healthcare workers have been accused of hoarding PPE. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know where that came from, except it's part of the blame game. And Mm -hmm. I took that very personal. No one is putting their lives on the line. I mean, mean, who else? Healthcare workers are the only ones who can't work from home. Mm -hmm. This is going to war without adequate weapons or protection. And the reason there is a lack, I think, partly too, is the fact that we don't put one gown and one mask on for the entire day. Like Darlene said, it's every patient. So in a shift, we could do with 15 or 20 of these uh, gowns and masks. Uh, So it's you know it's unreal to expect that we were going to be able to do with what we had right well it shows an uh not understanding not knowing um how um how these viruses operate how they impact the human body so it's kind of uh, i think one of our leaders had said that uh, you know who knew that medicine was so complicated well anybody who's had any any even peripheral contact to medicine knows how complicated it can be and that's when you start listening to your experts um you know if you have a very um 
uh, uh, expensive car, you're not going to take it to your brother-in-law down the street to, to try and fix it if they have no idea about what goes on with that car. And those, those concepts are pretty understandable to a lot of people, but because they're so uh, far removed from the kind of medicine that's being done to even know, I mean, the country doctor that maybe some people might be thinking of almost doesn't exist anymore. Um, we are um, right up against a break here. I'm thinking maybe this is a good place for us to take the break. Uh, when we come back, maybe we could talk a little bit more about what might help even where we are now. Um, there has to be things that, you know, from whatever moment we're at and we finally start to say, this is the reality, let's start working together. Um, let's talk a little bit about what might be helpful going forward. So this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. And we are our show today is the COVID-19 um, insights from healthcare workers. And my guests today are Darlene Nelson, who is a consultant for expert nurse consultants, and Dr. Juan Nieto, who is a board-certified, clinically active emergency room physician. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Thank you. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and Seventh Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise WomenInHealthcare.org, a national nonprofit, is our newest partner at Once a Nurse. It is among the most rapidly growing professional development groups for women in healthcare today. Through healthcare education, professional development, mentorship, community, and a focus on self, the organization empowers women with the tools needed to advance their careers. They use initiatives to break down barriers within organizations and equip women with the tools needed to open a powerful force for gender parity. 80% of the healthcare workforce is female, with nurses a massive majority of that percentage. But less than 20% of leadership is female. Join womeninhealthcare.org as they help all women of all ages and all levels rise up. Use code HEALTHPROS to receive $50 off the annual membership fee and receive discounted pricing for events, free resources, webinars, and a substantial discount for our annual leadership summit on October 22, 2020 womeninhealthcare.org to be where you want to be in the world of healthcare. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, 
positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Thank you so much for staying with us and uh, continuing along with our conversation here. Uh, this is the the um, episode that we have uh, doing today is COVID-19 Insights from Healthcare Workers. And my guests, as I've said, are Darlene Nelson, who is a nurse consultant with Expert Nurse Consultants, and Dr. Juan Nieto, who is board certified, clinically active in the emergency room, and both of them are operating in Texas. So... Um, Darlene, uh, we, we've been talking a lot before the break here about some of the really scary, um, unfortunate uh, missteps that have been happening, and they've happened from all levels of government and um, healthcare administrators and, uh, you know, right along the way. So we need to change this somehow. And what do we already have in place and what can we do from here that hopefully will make the things get better? We already have in place what we already have in place we have ignored. We already have in place OSHA uh, and the WHO and masses of very relied upon for decades research and studies and guidelines for uh, infection control. And and during this pandemic, those have been downgraded and just not uh, applied to. So we need to change that. I'm not sure. I haven't been able to figure out by talking to the governor, by talking to the Department of Health and Human Services. Nobody wants to answer the question, how are you going to get PPE to the frontline workers, to the nurses who are risking their lives and who are exhausted and who literally, after all this is said and done, are going to have PTSD because every day they're afraid. They're afraid Mm -hmm. they're going to get it. Many of them are. So the only answer is how to protect this, how to protect us in the future, because this is not the first novel virus we're going to deal with. Currently, there is a federal law that was passed in 1993 during the AIDS crisis to protect healthcare workers from bloodborne pathogens, hepatitis, HIV, and that brought us all kinds of protections. We had needleless systems come online, and we know how to protect ourselves from getting infected from pathogens that occur in the blood. So I think we need to pursue, and I'm trying to do that, a bill that is passed federally to provide mandated protections that hospitals will have to implement to protect their healthcare workers from novel viruses and 
and such things as having adequate PPE. Uh, and I, I don't know what else we can do except from the top down. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm thinking also that part of the problem here, and I think Dr. Nieto mentioned this, is if you don't have connection, uh, open um, knowledge of like the testing from state to state. So it has to be at a federal level to be able to figure out where are the hot spots, where are things moving, where uh, is it getting better, who's doing the things that are helping the most. Uh, we have to have that and it pretty much has to happen at a, um, a federal level. What we have is a very um, uh, patchwork quilt of probably through the public systems, um, information is being fed back up to the the federal level. But through public systems, they may or may not be um, providing all of the information that they have. Uh, The testing that we're doing, there's been so much difficulty with that because some of the tests didn't work. Um, Then we had to redo that. Um, and then finally, you know, get back to maybe have a, a better test, but it still took hours or days for that to be able to to get um, a positive or negative. In the meantime, that person could still be walking around and infecting other people. It's just, um, it doesn't work like this. Um, it's why we have an overall public health system uh, at every level of government. And we have to be able to have that working together hand in hand, just like we need to have hospitals working together hand in hand. Um, Dr. Nieto, what would you like to add as far as what what can we do going forward or what do you feel is needed? Uh, we're kind of in a tough situation. How do we turn this around? We keep doing what we're already doing. It takes the whole country to do it. Uh, In this case, it takes the world to do it. But we are in this together. We should fight it together. Uh, We have a responsibility to stay informed. I've been preaching that for two months. I mean, just Mm -hmm. stay informed. Uh, Don't listen to lies. Listen to the scientists. Dr. Fauci has been honest. Right. As far as I'm concerned, 100% of the time. He is the most experienced man at the CDC. He's like a national treasure. He is the man that probably will save more lives than anyone. And it's our duty to stay informed, know what our duty is, why we are doing everything that's happening around us. It's not just about the economy. It's not about a big black cloud. It's about a virus that we have no cure for. And it's going to require a lot of effort on and suffering on everybody's part. The most vulnerable people in the front lines are the people on the front lines, as we discussed, and the healthcare workers. Uh, I, I think we are spending a lot of time uh, politically with uh, equipment, but the limiting factor will always be the human factor. We cannot mm-hmm. be reproduced. We cannot have 3D printers make doctors, nurses, right. or sex. Mm-hmm. Et right. So I, I think it's going to be all of us working together, educating each other, and hopefully, you know, I've seen a lot of creative ideas. Hopefully, we will let our egos down and learn from what other countries are doing. They're doing mer- wonderful things. Mm-hmm. South Korea and Germany have done wonderful things to slow the growth, and we should learn from those things that are working. But I have no doubt that we will uh, have a vaccine 
and this will be in the history books, but not without mm-hmm. a lot of damage. And our goal right now is to minimize that pain and right. loss in human life. Would and would be you more say that? Of those who have no access. Would you say that there's a silver lining at all here? What would that be? Yes. The silver lining is that we realize that we are all in this together, mm-hmm. and hopefully we will be more willing to combat other significant issues like climate change after we deal with this uh, pandemic. It will prepare us for a global preparation for something like climate change. Mm-hmm. That's what can come out of it. it is we can all develop ways to stay informed and do something. So there is a silver lining. A lot of good things will come out of this. A tremendous amount of studies and knowledge about viral diseases and medications and treatments, etc. Right. But the important thing is that we have the opportunity to be united. This can bring us together. Yes. I was thinking that even if... um, if nothing else happened, we've been trying to figure out how to uh, take care of a larger population with less healthcare workers. And it seems to me that um, it's going to be telemedicine, telehealth, and that's what we're doing right now. So where a lot of people said it can't be done, it won't work, we're doing it and it's working. So that seems to be a really, really important thing. Um One of the things I wanted to share here before we get off, and and I had uh, said I was going to do this, um, over the last couple of weeks, I have been listening to a lot of stories. Most of them have been from nurses, but also from other healthcare workers, administrators, and uh, et cetera. Many of them have been horrendous, like some of the stories that Darlene and Dr. Nieto have shared with us today. but some of them have been just incredibly uh, impressive and uh, inspiring for me. And um, so I wanted to share just kind of a list of some of the things, and this is no way even a a complete list of all the things I've heard, Um, but just some of the things that I've heard that when you do it right, um, it works, and people can feel more confident, they can trust their administrations and their their leadership, and um, work together more confidently. So uh, some of the best places that I have heard, um, they already had a disaster plan in place, and it was well known to leaders and staff. And I guess I should say, too, that they already had a long history of trust between administration and employees. And that takes a long time to build uh, between employees being able to make their complaints known, people uh, addressing those and dealing with them. Um, So once the severity of the momentum of COVID uh, became apparent, those types of places, organizations pulled out those plans and updated them to reference to what we needed would be needed in this situation. And then as we went along, we realized there was a lot of things we didn't know about. And so things had to change as they went. Um, PPE was the top priority for a lot of these people. They gathered whatever they did have, uh, brought together from other parts of their organization, 
even pooled with other hospitals or other organizations within their area to see where was the equipment needed, getting it to that place and making sure that it was available for people. Some of the best ones created an immediate fund just for COVID, uh, realizing that they didn't even know yet what were going to be some of the things that that they need to um have available to them. Um, and so just creating this fund, pulling money from wherever they thought was not going to be needed during this time period, uh, they involved both formal and informal leaders in the problem solving. So ideas from everybody. Uh, leaders reported to all the staff as transparently as possible. Dr. Nieto uh, made that comment about transparency is so important and it has to be the truth to the best of your knowledge. Sure, that stuff can help, can change as it goes along, but as long as you're telling to the best of your knowledge at the moment, you will gain the trust of the people that are working with you. So uh, they um, stayed open to suggestions from their staff. They had all of their departments working together to try and create uh, whatever they could add to it. Um, I heard of one marketing department that was creating signs for the outdoors so that as uh, healthcare workers were coming into work, they were getting positive, encouraging messages as they came in. Um, some of the HR departments were trying to look at what were some of the worries that employees had and how could they um, look at that. And some of them had to do with uh, time off, um, caring for loved ones so that they wouldn't get sick or, or harmed. Um, one organization was providing showers so that as staff were leaving, they could take a shower, get a clean scrub to wear home so that they didn't have to worry about bringing COVID home with them. Um, just so many things like that. Um, providing safe places for the staff that were COVID positive. So uh, many times they were renting hotel rooms and then providing those rooms uh, with nu uh, nutrition. So uh, uh, trays were being delivered to them or food was being delivered to them that was healthy. Um, people were calling them. The managers were each supposed to call those individuals at least once a day they had another team of people who were calling uh, um, people that were ill uh, once a day and then encouraging other people to just, you know, keep in contact with them because going into quarantine when you're not feeling well in a, in a, um, a room somewhere where you don't know anything, you don't have any of your own things there can be just really almost like prison. Um they had a board on every floor that was encouraging staff, allowing staff to encourage each other. It was being uh, any of the new uh, input that was being given through the leadership was being put up on the board so anybody could get that information at any point uh, along their shift. Um, they provided um, uh, phone ta uh, tablets basically at the bedside of every um, COVID patient so that they could hopefully while they were still well enough contact their uh, family and friends and be able to have contact that way since they couldn't come in to the um, uh, to the facility and so that was really really important and then as the the client or the patient was getting uh, less and less well and perhaps getting to the point of coma and not able to communicate. Um, I remember one nurse talked about uh, uh, having the nurse that was with the patient put the uh, the tablet right next to the patient's ear and the wife was on the tablet and she talked to her husband until mm -hmm. he died. Um, oh, so dear. just it, 
yeah, just incredible uh, inventive ways of getting through the obstacles uh, and trying to make it possible for people to, you know, to be humane to one another. Um, they, they were a lot of innovative ideas, and I think Dr. Nieto mentioned that, too, that were, people were just coming up with all these bright ideas. Um, I heard of one where they needed some um, uh, ventilators, and a couple of doctors and somebody who was a technician-type person, um, they were all scuba divers, and they put, down, put together a ventilator based on scuba diving equipment, using scuba diving mm. equipment, and it worked. And so just so many things like that that are so um, possible when, you know, the need is there, people come up with bright new ideas. Um, and then some of these facilities, I was really, really impressed with the fact that they were sharing, they were documenting this journey. So from the beginning, somebody was keeping track what was happening, uh, pictures, uh, people's stories, so that their plan is when this is all over with, they want to be able to document this, um, that it, it didn't just evaporate and somehow people were supposed to recover from it but there would be something that would capture all of, a lot of those stories and a lot of what happened and what were the good things and some of that and then they are already planning a celebration so that when this is all oh. over that mm -hmm. each person can celebrate whatever part that they contributed um, Darlene I hear you responding does that that sounds like good ideas mm -hmm. to you that sounds like what we need to do going forward and for the next time. It, it will require changes in the mindset of corporate health care, which is where we are these days. We're a for-profit system. Um, and, and I would bet that those hospitals you're talking about are the public and county and teaching hospitals, which are less focused on profit. In fact, they're not focused on profit. You're uh, exactly right. And that's what... That's what we need. We need. We already have that model. You know, teaching hospitals are, are the best place to go if you're really sick, but they also are there for the patient. They're patient-focused because it's a teaching experience, and they are the community's safety net. And then surrounding that, you've got corporate health care, which is profit-focused. And so the silver lining is, out of all of this, hopefully our health care system will change. Right. Um, Darlene, just say a few things about, I think when we say corporate health care, I'm not sure that people really know what that means. Um, I don't know how many people really realize that there are entire cities and states health care that have been bought up, like various hospitals, and are right. being run by large, um, um, complex corporations. Do you want to say just a little bit about that? Yeah, it was around, I think, 2014 where healthcare had a huge shift. It went from the the public hospitals being the center of healthcare in most cities, and hospitals being not for profit. And all of a sudden, what happened is huge insurance companies and corporations bought up healthcare systems, being that they bought up hospitals, made huge systems out of them. And healthcare became a corporate industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And the corporate system is one that is pretty cutthroat. That's the corporate world. I mean, mm -hmm. and everything changed. I can tell you as a nurse 
everything changed for me. I was no longer able to focus only on the patient. I had mm-hmm. to focus on profit and money and and mm-hmm. time. Right. Um, that needs. We need to go back to a four patient centered healthcare system. So it makes sense why it's becoming so difficult to get that type of uh, system that is uh, caring for all of the people um, all of the time because the people who are making money on these huge, you know, maybe 800 uh, hospitals in a corporation system or something like that, they don't want it to change. Um, We're actually at the end here, and I am going to have to stop here, and I'm so sorry because it's been an interesting conversation. So I want to thank both of you, Darlene Nelson and also Dr. Uh, Juan Nieto. Um, I just wanted to finish by saying the world has been living, hearing, dreaming nothing but COVID-19 for what seems like forever. We may continue to live this reality for a very long time to come, depending on the decisions each of us make now. The important thing is that in the absence of strong, courageous leaders, we must figure out what we can do and then do it. The most important thing we as a world population must do is to learn from all the successes and mistakes that have been made on every level in every country and plan a viable way to turn the poison of these mistakes into the medicine of equitable solutions that bring every person forward rather than just the wealthiest. That is what creates a sustainable future for all of us. Uh, COVID, this has been um, COVID-19 insights from healthcare workers and my guests today have been Darlene Nelson, uh, a nurse consultant with Expert Nurse Consultants, and Dr. Juan Nieto, a board-certified clinically active emergency room ph- physician. Um, thank you so very much for joining me, and thank you all who have been listening and sharing this program with other people. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you for having thank me. You, You're welcome very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.